0: Talk to your local agent today.
1: Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? be the most valuable business
2: making your money work harder that's how you business differently intuit quickbooks banking services provided by green dot bank member fdic only funds and envelopes earn apy apy can change at any time
3: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who just wants President Trump to please give us a week without breaking anything. Okay, that's a lot to ask, maybe an hour. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know around the tech industry. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Bill Kristol, a political analyst who was the founder of the political magazine Weekly Standard, which closed last year. He was one of the key thinkers among Republicans during the George W. Bush administration, but has been critical of President Trump and is the director of an organization for anti-Trump Republicans called Defending Democracy Together. Bill, welcome to Recode Decode.
2: Thanks, Kara. Can so, we talk about technology? <laughs> yes, I'd love progress, to. Progress. Well, how know, people it, are going to medical advances. Yeah, we you know, will do that. But you know, Trump opposed, is very as opposed technical. To Trump, yeah. N- well,
3: he's used technology beautifully. I like speaking. Uh, which of is a good time.
2: lesson. I mean, yeah. not that people need to be taught it once again at the end of the 20th century, but technology is a double-edged sword, right?
3: I will talk to you about the hopeful parts of technology. Right now, it's causing lots of problems. I would say. <laughs> right. But let's let's talk about what's going on right now. So right in the middle, there was a t- every day. It's like something. It's like a. It is a reality show. In in a lot of ways. Um, But there was the the meltdown at the White House with Nancy Pelosi. Every day you could comment on something. Talk a little bit about the landscape of Washington right now.
2: It's been an extraordinary three years, but I do think something changed about a year ago. And I think the easiest way to think of it is this. In the first couple of years, I've always been anti-Trump and thought he was unfit to be president and was a bad president and so forth. Uh, But he would say things and, uh, that were disagreeable and really more than disagreeable, kind of repulsive. He would try to do things that were mm-hmm. illegal and inappropriate, to say the least. But often he would get stopped. Don McGahn didn't fire uh, Mueller, and Mattis um, refused to do various things through the Defense Department or persuaded him not to do things. Tillerson refused to do things that he thought were illegal sessions. I mean, you can just go down the, the list. Um, and there were both institutional constraints and sort of human barriers to his action. What's most striking to me about the last six, nine months, and has really come out in the Ukraine uh, story and in the Turkey-Syria story, is the barriers are gone. And I think people should be much more worried today Mm -hmm. than they were even a year ago. I mean, those of us who've been anti-Trump, there's a little bit of, he's the same person he always was. So what's new? Well, what's new is that Mattis isn't there, and Sessions isn't there, and McGahn isn't there. And those people were not perfect by any means, but they were different from the people who were there now. And I would say also, if you look at the Ukraine story, what strikes me is Trump has sort of learned how to use the instrumentalities of government to pursue his personal political and presumably financial interests. Whereas in the past, it was a little, you know, the government was kind of mysterious to him and often stopped him from Mm -hmm. doing some of these things. And that's what's really worrisome. You've got Pompeo and Barr in charge of the State Department and the Justice Department, who are intelligent people, apparently willing to use those departments to pursue Trump's personal interests. That is Nixon, honestly. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is what Nixon was impeached for, for using the FBI and the CIA to pursue inappropriate, illegitimate, illegal uh, enterprises. And I think we're in a very serious moment now.
3: All right, so let's talk a little about that down. You brought me down there, Bill, but that's okay. I agree with you. I think it's true. One of the things that my son was asking me this morning about the letter, that we, I read the Turkish letter to my kids. This is what I do in the morning. Right. Um, and they were like, how did that get written And I said, because there's stupid people around him now. There's people who don't stop, who don't say, no, no, we're not going to put this out. Maybe indulge it for a second and then don't let it get out. But now it doesn't matter. He's just dictating it and they're typing it down. And Which and is, Well I
2: think you're right to focus on that. I mean, right. that's the kind of thing he said two years ago in meetings where they couldn't really stop him from talking, mm-hmm. now he dictates the letter there's no process whereby the national security advisor says, Mr. President, we need to take a look at this where the Secretary of State, who presumably saw a draft, that doesn't get to say, gets to say nothing or it doesn't have the nerve to say anything. That is just actually dangerous, and we're seeing the actual dangers in Syria. It's mm-hmm. no longer, it's embarrassing, It's he's a, not a good president, it's not a good role model, he's distorting the way government works. People are getting killed because of his rash and foolish actions.
3: So where are we now with the, with the impeachment? Sort of walk us through what's happening.
2: I think the House is looking—you know, it's having these close hearings, and I think—I can't tell, but I think it seems to be doing a pretty good job of getting the uh, uh, facts about what happened with Ukraine, which seems to be a not just an attempt to uh, get—well, an attempt to get information about an American citizen from a foreign government for the president's personal political purposes bad enough— a quid pro quo, which was holding up the aid, which he did. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I think has been underreported is that side of it. The U.S. government works in its way. You know, Congress appropriated the money. The Defense Department said, okay. Of course, they don't have a choice. They said, yes, Congress, we will make available this military aid. They had huge lists of things that they worked out with the Ukrainians that would be useful. Uh, that was circulated within the government, and Trump just stopped it. So it's not— the case that oh there was an interagency dispute mm-hmm. and Trump just happened to have a view different from some of his cabinet officers. The system was working as it should have worked and really legally had to work, and he just stopped it. And the only reason he could have stopped it really was because he wanted the dirt mm-hmm. manufactured or provided on on the Bidens. So uh, the degree, to, so they seem to be investigating that. Yeah, uh, I think that'll. the private sessions will go maybe for another week or so through through August. I think we'll get to public hearings very quickly. And I think we're on a pretty fast track. I wouldn't be surprised if he's impeached by Thanksgiving.
3: By Thanksgiving. That's what Mitch McConnell was talking about yesterday,
2: right? Uh, that was very revealing, I thought. So McConnell apparently at the lunch with the Republican senators. They have lunch every Tuesday. Laid out a timetable which sort of presumed a Thanksgiving impeachment and then has the Republican Senate rushing through a trial and trying to acquit, I think by by christmas but you know mcconnell's a you know candy guy and he would talk to pelosi or indirectly mm-hmm. they would their staffs would confer and i don't think mcconnell just pulled this out of his ear you know that oh mm-hmm. well maybe it'll begin after thanksgiving i assume that they just for sort of purposes of letting congress do its job have conferred some and i so i think that's the probably the reasonable schedule to expect.
3: So do you think a lot of this is theater? Talk about how you look. You were saying this has never been more serious, but it feels a little theatrical at this
2: moment. It does, and that's because politics is always somewhat theatrical. And even in the most serious serious moments, it was in the past, Mm -hmm. if you think about it. But yes, now infinitely infinitely more than ever. Mm -hmm. But I would say this, I mean, apart from Schiff, foolishly, I think, you know, dramatizing the reading of of the, uh, the transcripts and a couple other little things like that. I think they've run, the last three, four, five weeks, I think a sense of, a greater sense of seriousness seems to have overtaken at least some of the uh, members of the House, the Democrats in the House. I think the Speaker's done a good job of conveying that. And um, I hope we do get a little more seriousness. Mm-hmm. And there's so much stuff like the letter and Trump's just outrageousness and the meeting with the... Congressional leadership yesterday that where Pelosi left after Trump insulted her, um, pretty unbelievably. Incidentally, mm-hmm. um, I
3: thought she was brilliant.
2: The fantastic. I, I the Putin line. Yeah, and I tweeted that uh, this has almost made me a feminist. You know? It's <laughs> like I'm, maybe just had you know I should just come out of the closet, just be just, a Nancy, just, just be yeah exactly a Pelosi or <laughs> something. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. It was pretty impressive. huh? Yeah. So you get all that stuff, and of course, part of his sort of weird cleverness is. That if you do a million colorful things, you know, it's hard to figure out what the truly illegal and truly dangerous things are right. in the midst of the rudeness and the carrying on and the you know just kind
3: the of, British couple thing. Whatever. Whatever right. it is that day. Whatever the it
2: vulgarity. is. The mm-hmm. vulgarity. I mean that is pretty he's Weirdly, he's helped by being a horrible human being, I would say. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. one gets distracted by his horrible human being deeds, like Mm -hmm. the British couple, and forget that, okay, look, that is bad, but that's not impeachable. But the things he's done as president, using parts of the U.S. government, illegitimately, those are serious.
3: So when you look at this, when you look at this moving towards this impeachment, and then it goes to a trial, and presumably he's acquitted, as most people assume is going to happen, even though every now and then you'll have a Washington Post piece saying, what if it isn't? I'm like, come on, like, I already know this. Story. It's not going to be like Succession, where that ha- where that suddenly had a twist. Um, but it's it's going to go in this sort of format. What occurs after that? What happens? Assuming it's just the election, right? That's that's really where it
2: goes. So too. the only caveat I would have for that is you know, we don't know everything yet. And mm-hmm. I do think we've said this so many times that you know one or two worse uh, developments. If it turns out Erdogan, the decision on Syria had a pers- on Turkey had a personal financial or other kind of political motive as well. I mean, I think we could learn things that might tip over some House Republicans to vote for impeachment and some Senate Republicans, maybe even 20, to vote for conviction. But I, I agree right now, it doesn't look like the votes are there. And I've talked to a couple of Senate Republicans recently, and they're, uh, that's that seems to be their, their judgment as of now. The political pressures are very great the other way. And we don't live in an age in which politicians remember that sometimes they can get a lot of uh, glory, really, for standing mm-hmm. up to political pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what's sort of funny, even from the point of view their own ambition, the idea that you get one more term as a sort of, you know, senator who went along as opposed mm-hmm. to going down in the history books as the one who stood up. I don't even see why their ambition doesn't lead them to want to be a little more rebellious. But so why is that? Somehow why? we live in an age of, you know, democracy and of I mean some of the media stuff fits, mm-hmm. fits in here perhaps, but the kind of sense that people just don't want to be alone against the the mob, honestly, in this case. And to be fair, they have some convictions and they rationalize it. You know, it would be terrible if the Democrats controlled every—if Governor Trump, it would weaken the Republicans, the Democrats would win everything, would have quasi-socialism mm-hmm. here in America. The one thing I've learned in the last three, four years—I'll preface it this way. My generation, I'm a little older than you, mm-hmm. we, we all learned, you know, in college and grad school and after that, uh, when communism was— thing mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union, and Nazism had been a thing. You know, the power, what did Eric Hoffer call his book, the true believer, that, that people, including very intelligent people, intellectuals, you know, could talk themselves into these kind of totalitarian doctrines, mm-hmm. and kind of utopianism, and or just kind of getting crazy about um, a certain set of beliefs. And I think I sort of understood that. What I didn't understand is the power of rationalization, mm-hmm. how much people can talk themselves into, you know, well, this one, you know, we, we've got to get some good judges and get some better economic policies so we can go along with this. And then three months later, we'll go along with that. And three months later, you've talked yourself into thinking that the this and the that weren't so bad anyway mm-hmm. and the media is being unfair. And three right. months later, it's, you know, the guy's kind of got a clever genius almost about getting yeah. some of these things done. And maybe that's what you've got to do to win these days because look at the left and look how mm-hmm. horrible they are. Look at the, the media. And, I mean, really things that a, a year ago, so two years ago, people would have just said is so beyond the pale in terms of American mm-hmm. public discourse and uh, civil rhetoric. Well, that's rhetoric. lower
3: standards. Yeah. Little by little. Yeah. It Enemy happen. of
2: the people. And, right. You know, come on. That, you well. can't say that. That's terrible. It's going to do real damage to the country. And now mm-hmm. it's just routine. And maybe the, they don't use it themselves, though some of them do. But they certainly don't even blink when, when Trump does. So anyway, it's a long way of saying that there's a lot of rationalization going on. But anyway, I suppose if he's acquitted, let's just say, right before Mm -hmm. Christmas, then we go ahead with 2020 uh, with an election year. But of course, the investigations don't stop. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's most worrisome, incidentally, about Ukraine, of course, is—and this is why I do think uh, people need to make this argument, too, for uh, impeachment and conviction—is what was he trying to do with with, with the Biden stuff? Mm-hmm. It wasn't that he just disliked Joe Biden and wanted to discredit him retroactively. He wanted to affect the twenty twenty election.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, how confident are we that we will have free and fair, truly free and fair elections? in the United States in 2020 with Donald Trump at the White House. How confident are we going to have a president who's really going to try to prevent disinformation from flooding, you know, right. the uh, well, we'll get to that. various media yeah. fora? Right. How confident are we that we're going to have a president who's going to aggressively secure ballot boxes and ensure that everyone votes, and that if something goes haywire, which God knows could happen, right, blackouted in 20 cities on mm-hmm. election day, by some, uh, done by some foreign power, wanting to cause huge trouble? that we'll have someone behave responsibly in 9-11. You know, know, remember they were scheduled to have Mm a primary in the mayoral election that day. Right, uh, At the end of Giuliani's term. And of course, 9-11 happened, and they, you know, the system worked. They postponed it. They had the vote two months later. Everyone got, there was no controversy. Are we confident that Donald Trump would behave in a responsible way if you had, you know, events like that? So I do think that I'm worried about 2020. I mean, I, I think... People focus on the election and all that, and all kinds of other things. But I mean, are we confident he's not going to stir up violence in the streets? Are we confident that you know we're going to not look more like, I don't know, Brazil or Colombia or mm-hmm. you know some third world country having an election? There'll be an election. Everyone, people will vote. It will probably be ultimately kind of a fair election. But are we? Will it be an American election as opposed to one of those, you know, right. Pakistani election where right. people are there are mobs and there's intimidation and there's attempts to shut down media outlets, maybe not by the government but by others on the outside and the disinformation problem, incidentally,
3: right? Is we're really get, we're great. Get all okay, on that. good. So when you when you think about that, you, it will it will. More investigations will continue. Obviously, there's tax investigations. There's there's all kinds of investigations going on at the same time. And I think one of the things you're talking about, the exhaustion factor, of the the persistent, I think works sort. Like you said, his bad personality works beautifully because you're like, oh, remember that? Like, remember the family that he attacked. Remember the whatever the 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 shit hole countries. Remember the like it exhausts you and you get pulled into sort of an enragement cycle that must be exhausting but before we get to that you you did um mention that people feel the pressure to rationalize everything how real is the pressure on these republicans
2: it's real if you really want a very high probability of getting renominated and perhaps re-elected uh, and it's real if you care a lot about not getting yelled at, at at the town hall at a town meeting or attacked on fox news and to be fair. If you care about not having some death threats and some, you know, genuine harassment perhaps of your family and your supporters, I don't know. Is it real by historical standards of what dissidents and Mm -hmm. minorities have stood up to in the world or in the United States? Is Mm -hmm. it real compared to what John Lewis and Martin Luther King and others saw in the 50s and 60s in the South or to what? Gay rights activists saw in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I mean, I think it's lowering the bar in a way to give them a a lot of—too much sympathy for for what they would go through. Right, and not
3: standing up. So you had been—you know, you've been a leader of the Republican Party. Did this catch you unawares how how much—and talk a little about your journey of of being a dissident, really. I mean, a— resistance, uh, the resistance, essentially.
2: It caught me somewhat unawares. I mean, one always knows in any major party, obviously, there are elements that are unseemly and unsavory and somewhat dangerous even. But I would have said... 2014-15 that we had mostly actually managed contained and even in some respects purged those elements we got Buchanan ran in the Republican Party and yep. IDs with a very I think uh, a, you know the bad message and uh, at times verging into anti-Semitism and so forth but he was out of the party by 99, 2000. Ron Paul ran but got some votes but obviously ends up being a fringe figure we nominate McCain and Romney and you know mm-hmm. it feels to me like the party's in reasonable shape. Um, I think I underestimated in the way some of these subterranean moods and sentiments and rivers that were uh, ready to kind of burst out, um, but, but you know, they're always there in a way, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, a little, it's, it's unfair in a way to look back and say, well, you should have seen that there was this element. Mm-hmm. Of course, there was this element in the Tea Party, for example, but a lot of the Tea Party were decent people trying to, you know, were outraged about various things. Um, Anyway, I think people went crazy in the Obama second term. Mm-hmm. He didn't Limbaugh say the day after the election, "We've lost America." That became the sense. People thought Romney was going to win. They had a somewhat irrational hatred of Barack Obama, and you know couldn't believe the 51% of Americans voted to re-elect him. And I remember saying after the election, well, look, it's hard to beat an income, but he got lower percentage of the vote than he got in 2008. Republicans held the House and were about to win the Senate in 2014. The country hasn't gone that crazy from a conservative point of view. They re-elected mm-hmm. Barack Obama, you know. Mm-hmm. How much damage is he going to do in a second term? He did some damage, I think, in foreign policy. But, but people just— uh, we're ready for Trump's message. And then he got very lucky, I think, with a bunch of events came together, the terror attacks in Europe, the terror attack uh, here in San Bernardino. Uh, he had a kind of genius at seeing, playing on people's anxieties. We're really not used to, we're used to demagogues, mm-hmm. senators, representatives, uh, governors. But he was a, a bigger demagogue on a national stage who really had an ability to... It was more shameless in a funny way. Mm-hmm. I mean, George Wallace is a demagogue, but he was actually had a sort of set of views which ultimately constrained his ability, same mm-hmm. with Buchanan. I'd say, you know, to, to go for a bigger audience. Right. Um, it wasn't true of Trump, who just saw that immigration was a sore spot. Had it done, he'd done nothing on immigration for his whole career. Mm-hmm. I think he is genuinely kind of a protectionist and a sort of an isolationist. But immigration is not an issue he'd weighed in on at all, and he just was willing to ruthlessly play that card to to exacerbate uh, anxieties and pre- and plan prejudices, you know, the prejudices are always there, but there's a big difference in a society, in life, between latent prejudices that are people that are kind of embarrassed to express, except mm-hmm. maybe you know, quietly to a few friends, and the exalting and exaltation and proclamation of prejudices. Sure. I mean, it's the difference between a decent society that has some... Unpleasant aspects, kind of under the surface, which is probably most societies in human right. history, all societies in human history, and really, I think, damage being done to the, you know, to our civic well-being. So and, I, and I would say on that, just we have people have underestimated, I think, the damage of having then for three years a demagogue as president. I mean, whatever you think of our presidents, they've they have it, engaged in demagogue at times, but. No, to systematically can't. exacerbate racial and ethnic tensions and anxieties and play on people's sense of victimhood over and over and over. That really is new. And, and when a president does it, it makes a big difference. It's one thing if people on Fox News do it, and the three million viewers of Tucker Carlson hear this. Mm-hmm. It's Something if yeah. the president of the United States says it over and over again.
3: Talk about your journey and when this is happening. So you were pretty ensconced in the conservative scene as it was.
2: Yeah, I mean, well... I mean, I've always been, you know, somewhat contrary, and I think right. rebellious. I was a McCain person in mm-hmm. ninety nine, two thousand, and I actually thought the party was too elitist and kind of too unaware of some popular discontent mm-hmm. in two thousand nine, ten, and so forth. And, I had my foreign policy debates, of course, within the party as a hawk and all this. No, but I got taken by surprise. I don't know. I don't think I changed much. I just said, this is unacceptable. Trump's unacceptable. And we need to oppose him in the primaries and try to find a third party candidate that didn't work in 2016. And then uh, not simply give in to him just because he's president. I mean, like everyone else in November, December, January, not everyone else, but I mean, I think a lot of people in my circumstance. I thought maybe he'll be a little better than I expected. Maybe he will rise sort of to the occasion. I won't like him much, but maybe he'll be, you know, internalize the fact that he's president mm-hmm. of the United States. And that really, again, that was maybe not inevitable, but uh, it certainly didn't happen. Mm-hmm. For me, That the, the date that I, I was obvious to me, oh, my God, we're just going to have four years of this. I mean, it was the day after. The inauguration day was bad enough. It was mm-hmm. kind of crazy speech. But the day after when he went to the CIA... And I've been there, you know, and he speaks in the hall in front of the stars for, you know- Fallen, the Representing it. the CIA agents. who He has given up the sacrifice their lives for the country and gives some political remarks and complaints about the media reporting on his crowds at the inauguration. And I thought, you know, he's not adjusting at all to the fact that he's president. And that's really, he has gotten worse, not better.
3: Right. What does that put you at as a conservative in the party that you're in?
2: I think it's a, it's a big question, much discussed in my circles. I've sort of given up on, like, I don't know if conservatism has a future. Maybe we'll end up saying that, you know what, conservatism did some good things for the country, I think, honestly, it wasn't right about some issues, did some not so good things. But anyway, it was a 70-year movement we from Buckley and others in the 50s all the way to 2015. We're in a new political moment. Maybe liberalism, one could say the same thing, incidentally, that you know mm-hmm. some of the old uh, doctrines don't really seem to apply to the America of 2019, 2020. And we need to rethink things. And maybe that's true, incidentally, of the the two big parties, or at least of the Republican Party. I mean, one reason I've tried to fight within the Republican Party, and an awful lot of my friends have left and said it's hopeless, and they may turn out to be right, is that it'd be bad for the country, I think, for one of the two major parties to go in this nativist, xenophobic, quasi-authoritarian direction. I mean, it's not a little thing that, for most of American history, we've had a reasonable conservative party that's not gone in the direction of some european conservative parties mm-hmm. and a reasonable liberal party that hasn't gone in a crazy direction to the left and that's a good thing if you could maintain it and that's why i've tried to fight the fight for the republican party but i'm intellectual and i'll fight that for the next year i think but i'm intellectually open to the notion that maybe we just need to think about everything in a fresh way and figure out how to have a healthy liberal democracy, a healthy, you know, free market system with obviously limitations and qualifications in a welfare state and so forth. Maybe we just need to think fresh about that, free from conservatism and liberalism, or even free from the two parties as they've existed.
3: All right, we're here with Bill Crystal. That's really interesting, and we'll get up on that when we get back. He's the director of a group called Defending Democracy Together. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Support for this podcast comes from constant contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need constant contact. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. Constantcontact.com.
3: We're here with Bill Kristol, who's obviously a very well-known political analyst. Uh, he's founder of the political magazine, The Weekly Standard, which closed last year. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But talk about defending democracy together. You're, you're talking about whole new parties, like the whole, the whole, the redoing of everything.
2: I think that's a possibility. I mean, I say we've focused in, in defending democracy together. Our particular comparative advantage, I'd say, is a lot of people <laughs> thinking about revitalizing democratic forms and, and defending democratic norms uh, has been to try to say, wait, let's not give up on the Republican Party. Let's have Republicans for the rule of law. That's one of our groups. Let's have Republicans fighting for uh, American leadership in the world and so forth. And so we've fought that fight. We've done some good on the margins, I think, but we'll see what happens over the next year. But. Um, we may end up, you know, as I say, I I, I don't have a—I prefer if, if the Republican Party could be saved, but I'm not sure it can be.
3: And what would be in its wake? What would be—
2: I mean, I don't know. One could imagine a Trumpy party and then a— centrist party, perhaps, a Bloomberg kind of, you know, uh, et cetera party.
1: And then, et cetera.
2: Well, but these days I do find, I mean, I talk to my friends who from the Clinton administration or, or, or the Obama administration even, and we, had, God knows we had our differences, but you know, difference between a marginal tax rate of 38% and 44% or a difference between this way of arranging health care with Obamacare-type exchanges as opposed to tax credits, mm-hmm. those do not seem like fundamental differences compared to the basic norms of and institutions of liberal democracy at home and a basic commitment to uh, a liberal world order which i think has been a pretty big accomplishment of the last 70 years 100%. In which trump has just been able to convince people that that's worth nothing you know yeah. valid, incredible you know what era. you think? last week uh, it's not
3: our problem had nothing yeah. to do with us. Yeah,
2: these that's real. That's worked out great in the past <laughs> like when we when we say that the Marshall that Plan
3: worked out pretty well for everybody. <laughs>
2: yeah, and you know we have a lot of experience of turning our back on different parts of the world that seem to be far away, and we're far away. Whether it's Europe in the 30s or Afghanistan in the 90s, and and how does that work out? And I think people have underestimated that side of the danger too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, domestically we we are pretty strong as a country, and we've got a huge economy, we've got civil society, we've got a free media, we've got universities. I mean, I, I think you could... It's, it's hard for one president to, to really ruin it all. It's not Argentina or something where, mm-hmm. you know, Brazil, one guy gets in Hungary and, you, you know, you look up and six years later, half the universities are firing professors who don't agree with, the, with them and half the media mm-hmm. companies are shut down and so forth. Uh, there's some risks that way, but I don't think we're anywhere near that. The liberal world order, though you know, is more precarious, obviously. And there, I think people are underestimating just how much damage could be done.
3: So where do you imagine, we're in the middle of the Ukraine thing, which we talked about, but what happened in Syria... This is sort of anchored Republicans in this. Finally, Lindsey Graham has a spine, although I'm sure it will go away relatively soon.
2: Yeah, they've remembered what they criticized yeah. Obama for, right. which is precisely, I mean, mm-hmm. ironically, weakness in the exact same part of the world and mm-hmm. saying he would do something and then not doing something. Different circumstances, but not entirely incomparable. We'll see if that's more of it than a temporary Thing they'll pass, you know whether they just pass a few sanctions and then go right back to defending Trump. But for me, and the reason it might be important even for impeachment, indirectly, but certainly it should be important for people, is this is the next year and the next four years after that if Trump's reelected, Syria is not not an exception. It's not a bug. It's a feature. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a feature once you lose Mattis, and right. once you lose McMaster, and once Trump feels liberated to pander to every sort of thing that he wants to pander to, in this case, some vague sense that the Middle East wars are difficult, and it'd be great to get our troops home, and why are we in the middle of this historic fight? And, and he's shamelessly using They've those got a lot tropes. a sand. Yeah.
3: It's a border problem.
2: I mean, I don't know that Americans really buy that, because Americans are somewhat sophisticated, I'd say, about what happens when you leave the world, and an awful lot of Americans have— kids who've served in businesses that do stuff internationally. You know, it's not like the country's not nearly as parochial as people say. I don't think. But there's always been a market for that kind of demagoguery. And if he gets away with it, you know, he'll do more of it. It's not like he's not going to then think, well, that worked pretty well with Sy- okay with Syria. Why do I have troops in Korea? Why do I have troops in Europe? Why do I have trade agreements that I still kind of respect with lots of parts of the world? Mm-hmm. And everything that we've sort of treated as... You know, Trump kind of jabbing at the system a little bit, but mm-hmm. not really threatening it. I think in a second term of Trump, it, the threat, it just gets much, much more dangerous.
3: Especially abroad.
2: Yes. Especially abroad.
3: So then what happens if they continue to do this? This idea of executive having full power, the, the Second Amendment lets me do everything,
2: or whatever the, amendment. Article means, 2, I, article I think. He two. loves yeah. Article 2. Jr.: yeah. No, that's bad, too, and the failure of Congress to stand up. I mean, the Democratic House has obviously stood up more, but— the, uh used to be, well, Madison said ambition should counteract ambition, but he, he didn't quite anticipate the party system in general, but especially hyper-polarized parties with a huge amount of deference to the president and the president willing to use the threat of, I'm going to go after you in a primary if you don't go along. Having said all that, I still can't believe these people. They work for years and decades to become congressmen and senators elected by their constituents in their districts and states. And they think their job is to just kowtow to the president. It's really pathetic. Mm-hmm. Honestly. I don't even, I don't really understand it, I guess I've got what to say. What do you say. say
3: to them? You've known, you know, you're sort of a of well, I sort of, of say what I just
2: said. And, yeah. Uh, and they, oh, come on. Bill. You know, it's, you, I'm doing a lot of good behind the scenes. Yeah. Sometimes they are doing some good, you know. Mm-hmm. And I have to have access, and it's good for my state when I can get, stuff done and also on some issues, I can change things a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think think that stuff was a little more credible in the first year or two. Mm -hmm. And now after Syria, this is where I think Syria is a big deal. I mean, it's sort of like we're now seeing real consequences. Of this, Not just things that con law professors say, well, this is really kind of a bad precedent, mm-hmm. but real-world consequences.
3: So when you're in this, one of the things you do a lot is you spend a lot of time uh, talking about this on Twitter and on, on social media. You're quite good as a tweeter. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's a really high phrase I, from well, you. I'm a professional, <laughs> and I recognize a, a fellow professional. But talk about the, the impact of that on your job. And I, want, I do want to get into the Weekly Standard and publishing and influencing people now. Because obviously Trump is the troller-in-chief, essentially, and yeah. quite good at it, too, by the way.
2: He is. I mean, it's just a question with Trump, which historians will look at a lot, how much Twitter was responsible for success, how much Fox, how much— uh,
3: Oh, I think he's governing by Twitter now. i yeah. He's written this. He yes. Yeah. I said he was going to, and now he really, truly is.
2: And you think the direct access is a big deal? The I mean, direct access to 50 million followers yes, or whatever. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, think I, I why, tend to agree. Pass. I'm not. I, yeah. mean, I, just, yeah. I mean, it's so different from the world obviously I grew up in. In, in politics, there's
3: no need of a press conference or a press release right. or any of that. The, this is the old ways, and I would not ag- disagree with that being the smart move on his part.
2: Yeah, well, it seems to be panning out okay for him. It, mm-hmm. it, I guess in a way, it's not. really the way, it's not a, maybe healthy for representative democracy. But right. I mean, I'd say I generally underestimated the importance of. I don't know what we're going to call it, the internet, you know, the last 30, last 25 years of that technological revolution. I, I remember people would say early on that this is like the industrial revolution. I'd say, yeah, it's a pretty small part of the economy. Of course, it's going to change communications and speed them up and make them more direct. And a lot of that stuff was pretty obvious. But I think the combination of... In you know, much we read this and I did, but the instantaneous communication and availability of everything, and Mm -hmm. social media, and then the portability, the handheld device, and I'm I'm sure people put this in a better way than I'm putting it, but all that together, it's one thing to be able to go online and search. You know, Google is just a better encyclopedia, right? Sure, right. That doesn't Mm -hmm. really change people's lives. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like when my kids were in high school, in the late '90s, early 2000s. They would go online to look stuff up instead of right. going to but it didn't fundamentally cattle change cattle. their social lives, the way they thought about things mm-hmm. and so forth. I do think the the phone, the Facebook, the phone, social media is is a on top of everything else, is a pretty major change. And I really underestimated, and I saw this so much in the last two, three, four years, the, the extent to which then people would start living in their own echo chambers and really Start believing things that were just not the whole concept of the truth gets pretty tenuous. Mm-hmm. Havel or someone, one of the Soviet era dissidents, made this point, and it's been echoed a lot recently. Kasparov likes to say this: that the key for Trump and for people like him is not to persuade you that he's telling the truth, is to persuade you that there it's not there is no real truth. Right? Well, who's to say? Right. Everyone's who's to got say. their own thing, you know. Right. And once you win that. Then, if you're a good demagogue who can appeal to people's emotions, anxieties, discontents, and so forth, you'll do fine, right? Right. right. So, and I really saw that at the, at the end of the Weekly Standard, one of our do We'll talk
3: this. about that. So, so you started these. this. Explain what you what you had done. So the
2: Weekly Standard was a. It started just before the internet took off, so uh, it was a, it started as a traditional weekly. Uh, print magazine in 95, sort of competitor of the New Republic, which was the sort of granddaddy of the liberals. And We were going to be the conservative, kind of highbrow of culture and arts as well as politics, but quite a lot of political coverage and Mm -hmm. sort of reporting. My colleague Fred Barnes and others were real old-fashioned reporters. But then also analysis. David Brooks started at the Weekly Standard, mm-hmm. and many others uh, right. like him. David Frum wrote for us a lot, and um, uh, so we had, I think, intelligent commentary and 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 so forth. Obviously, the internet came along. We the Daily, the Weekly, and Weekly Standard became a little. We kept the, the name, but it, it became just you know we we obviously had posts and were fully internet friendly, so to speak. Um, but I was struck, we, so we used to do these cruises, Most, mm. a lot of people do this, uh, to try to make some money to supplement mm-hmm. your deficits, since you don't make money with these kinds of enterprises. And I remember the last cruise in 2017, I guess it was. Uh, and so you get their panels, and you go see some nice places, it's interesting tourism, and you have dinner with your cruisers. So these are people who read the Weekly Standard, they're intelligent people, if I could say, mm-hmm. uh, pretty well off if they're paying for this cruise, you know, a lot of retired 70-year-old businessmen, lawyers and such from around the country. And I was at our table, and someone said, what about the problem of election fraud? Bill, well, I mean, there are millions of people voting, and the Democrats control that, and it's mm-hmm. really— And I said, you know, that's been looked into quite a lot. It's not really a big problem. We have a kind of a weird election system mm-hmm. because of federalism. Yeah. Uh, my kids are probably still on the ballot, still on the rolls in Virginia, as well as in New York, if that's where a couple of them live, one of them now lives. But they're not actually voting in both places, so the actual number, amount of fraud is quite small. It's mm-hmm. just that it looks kind of messy— no, no, no. I know that there are the 3 million voters. I said they really weren't, you know. Well, no, I, I read it. Someone sent me an email about it. I mean, I was really struck by the degree to which intelligent people, well-educated people were believing things that
3: were sent to them. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: And that I think is a pretty big change. And mm-hmm. I think Fox News compounds it. But I think if it was just sent to you and you didn't flip on your TV and have on a major you know, cable news channel that's well-produced and looks very professional Mm -hmm. and has some respectable parts. That was always (laughs) kind of important, actually. You know, so then you can say, well, they wouldn't be saying this on Fox News at 8.30 p.m. if this weren't true. And then when the president says it, I think it's really compounded again. Mm -hmm. So I think the combination of all that has created a bit of a crisis of truth, almost, in in our society. So
3: of the many technologies, email, Twitter, Facebook, which one do you think is the problem, or all of them together with compounding with the with the cable element.
2: Yeah. I don't I mean I'm not sure. I, I think Twitter that Trump likes Twitter, so and, mm-hmm. and and Twitter's got, you know, the kind of comical brevity of the mm-hmm. tweets so everyone picks on Twitter. But Twitter is more straightforward in the sense that I mean leaving aside whether you have to use your name- you don't have to use your exactly. own name, so maybe that's not that's a bit of a problem. But. It's for everyone to see. Like you mm-hmm. don't see a different tweet from me than someone else sees. Sure. You might see more tweets from me if you follow me than someone mm-hmm. else. But mm-hmm. it's more like old-fashioned posting, uh, you know, blogging really, right, sure. just shorter. Like a, right. I think Facebook. But again, I defer to you on this. I mean, I think Facebook is a sort of a different kind of thing almost because of the algorithm and because of the feeding to your, you know, to you of things that you. Have liked, or the kinds of things that you have liked, right. or the kinds of things that your friends have liked. Right. And there's a kind of segregation on Facebook that's even greater, I think, mm-hmm. than that of Twitter or that of Google's algorithm. To the degree that they,
3: you know, how, how do you assess how the uh, the Trump campaign and Trump himself have used the
2: mediums? Well, there again, I, I defer to people who looked at this more closely. Sure. But I think they they were early on the Facebook thing. They probably mm-hmm. illegally had mm-hmm. Cambridge Analytica probably illegally. Used Facebook stuff, and I guess this mm-hmm. is a question of how much Facebook cooperated and all that, but the degree to which they were able to get things beneath the radar to voters that were not fact-checked in the way the normal media would fact-check, which God knows wasn't perfect, and a lot of, as I said, there's been a lot of demagoguery in American history. Joe McCarthy, I yeah. have here a list, but it's very different. I mean, in fact, like McCarthy is a good case study where you can get away with it for a little while. You're a senator, though. You're not the president, of course. And you get away with it, sort of, but there's pushback that eventually it all topples over. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the more normal fate of that kind of demagoguery in, in American history, right. got, I would say. And here, you just—the normal checks don't, it seems, don't come into play. Though, again, if Trump hadn't become president, I'm not sure if that we would be—
3: Noticing this.
2: —quite as long. And then the disinformation possibilities, though. I, mean, I, I a meal recently with someone quite senior at one of the big tech companies, and uh, you know I'm, I'm just not that knowledgeable about that, so I was really just asking kind of elementary questions. And I said, mm-hmm. I don't know. Couldn't so these deep fakes now? You mm-hmm. can do the audio and sure. the deep video. What if they just Elizabeth Warren's the nominee and Saturday before the election? They flood social media with Elizabeth Warren saying Elizabeth Warren in scare quotes that is a a fake video, but mm-hmm. but one that looks real. Elizabeth Warren saying she's going to take away everyone's money, uh, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
2: beyond hundred thousand dollars, whatever. Right? And he said, actually, well, that probably would be so kind of crazy, and there'd be such a reaction, it might not really affect much. Mm. But think about the much more. The scarier thing is a much mm-hmm. more insidious and clever, mm-hmm. you know, targeted messaging sure. to, to certain to people. to certain she said people. That. just like these
3: people on this boat where they were talking about— Right, and, and
2: like, not, you know, doing it at a level where 25 million people see this and so right. there's a reaction. Right, out in plain but sight. But doing it at a level where 100,000 people in Michigan see it. And the message isn't quite as crazy, but it's slight distortion of something she mm-hmm. once said or could have said or someone else said, you know. And so— um, I think we haven't even begun to come to grips with how that could affect our elections.
3: So should we be—like just this week, Facebook reiterated one of its policies, which is politicians can lie. And then today, Twitter reiterated its policy that— Politicians can break its laws, and it, they're newsworthy. I think they put out a thing that was—everyone was like, oh, God, they, they don't want to make a decision. How do you look at that? Should When they do that, how do you so think So I'm
2: ambivalent. It? I mean, I'm not opposed in principle to uh, some regulation, maybe greater mm-hmm. regulation or some different kinds of regulation mm-hmm. uh, or antitrust and other things like that in the sense that— uh, but on the other hand, I also see, do we want one private company deciding what's a lie and what's not mm-hmm. a lie? Do we want f- one private company controlling what we see? Does that mean it should be a public utility? Does that mm-hmm. mean it should be five private companies? I think there's an important debate and discussion to be had about that. You've written on this a lot and talked talking about this. Yep. I mean, I would say the level of the political debate is, I don't know what you think, I think it's just abysmal. I mm-hmm. mean, so people do get alarmed, which is okay And about—I mean, if you came down from Mars and— you looked at this major part of America and world business economy and communications, and it was set up the way it's currently set up, with Facebook, Google, and and Twitter a little bit. You would say, this is a little crazy. Why do they have... Why does one person have 92% market share of search, and another mm-hmm. person, you know, why does Facebook dominate everything? And so then there's reasonable discussion about, as I say, antitrust, limitations, breaking up parts of it, making you own your own, letting you own your own information much more easily, et cetera, et cetera, not letting them sell stuff. But the level of discourse on the political side is just idiotic, I think. Mm-hmm. Josh Hawley gives these tub-thumping speeches about Facebook and about big tech. And I sort of read a couple. I thought, well, maybe this will be interesting. And the solutions are just idiotic. Mm-hmm. You know, they have nothing to do with the actual problems.
3: Right, right. And Kamala Harris in the Democratic debate but started to get into it, oddly enough. with Elizabeth. It's interesting because I wrote a column about this saying, look, he's breaking the laws all the time and Twitter's going to do nothing about it. And she went a step further and said, let's knock him off. Yeah. And I was pointing out they're never
2: going to knock him off. No, and probably, you know, shouldn't maybe. And, uh I don't know. So I, that, I think it's a big challenge though. I mean other f- huge communications revolutions have posed challenges to, you know, what to kind of to society to to say me. Decently- I I hadn't really realized this. I read something about the 30s. I think the radio was an important part of Hitler's dominance Absolutely. of Germany. It yeah. got him break through the established forms and speak right. directly to the people. It yep. Th- doesn't mean we should yep. abolish the radio. It doesn't mean we should, right. you know, we could if we wanted to, etc. But it, these things do have political effects. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm not too sure about the regulatory situation. I do think that big tech companies have been bizarrely unwilling to even have a educated discussion about it, though, mm-hmm. and, and they've been irresponsible. I was on a panel with Eric Schmidt a couple of years ago, and I, I really don't, as you can tell from this conversation, don't know that much and don't have that much of mm-hmm. a review of it. And I said, aren't these legitimate questions, though, it seemed mm-hmm. to me. And he was just unwilling to... Right. You know, well, that day that. has
3: passed, Bill. <laughs> to, yeah, it has. Right? You know, I think every congressperson yeah. really does understand the impact of this. And oddly enough, the right and the left tend to agree. It's just what they agree about is different. Like you have a Josh Hawley talking about bias, which is just ridiculous because Josh Hawley never shuts up online. Like I'm sort of like, well, where, right. where don't you get through because I see you everywhere. And, there, or, and
2: Facebook has a point that it's not like five Facebooks would be any different from one Facebook, right. I suppose, in a sense, yeah. right? I mean— well, not or so. would they? Well, In- not Innovation.
3: So. Well, we'll talk about the next when we get back. We're talking with Bill Kristol, the director of Defending Democracy Together and obviously a well-known political analyst. And we're going to talk about uh, where things are going to go and, uh, from here um, as we move into the election and also the Democrats.
0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
3: We're here with Bill Kristol. He is a well-known political analyst in Washington, sort of a, would you call yourself a creature of Washington? Are you a creature? I, I, I'm not a
2: creature. You know, I'm a human <laughs> being. From you the know, Black Lagoon. I think you should learn to treat every human with respect, you know. I didn't start the swamp thing, my friend. I didn't start Good the point. swamp.
3: Um, so, when you are operating in this situation, we have the, the, the government still unwilling to really regulate tech, obviously, and having a huge bigger and bigger impact. Election security is a, is a big issue. Disinformation is one. You're not a technical person, but if you look at all these different things, you have disinformation, uh, election security, uh, attacks on the grid, possibly things like that, Russian influence. Which of these things do you think we all have to get together and deal with?
2: more quickly. I mean, so Republicans for the Rule of Law, which is a group we stood up out of our defending democracy together, has done a lot arguing for more election security legislation and funding from the Hill. Again, Mm -hmm. we're not experts, but let's err on the side of caution here. You Mm -hmm. know what? If if an extra half billion dollars uh, could really let the states secure the actual voting, you know, Mechanisms from being hacked and dis- and results being distorted and so forth. That's a pretty cheap investment to have right. a, a confidence that we're having a that aspect of a free and fair election. Disinformation mm-hmm. is probably much harder to deal with. One thing I, I was struck by though I was at a conference and they did this role playing st- a simulation thing, which I actually hate those things, but it was actually pretty interesting. Like, what would election day look like if it's a close election? If Trump denies that he's lost?
3: I did that. I did that in a conference. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. I,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. I think maybe 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 this prompted it. Mm-hmm. I, honestly. Maybe Maybe it did, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, Fox would be magnifying those charges. People would Mm -hmm. be taking to the streets from the other side to ensure that the true results— And what does that look like? And that really does look like, you know, some third-world country where you don't—you know, there's sort of turmoil and violence. Maybe ultimately it kind of works out. And so one thing we came up with which just totally, you know, wouldn't solve it but might help. Well, shouldn't there be some kind of—we have ways—when we go abroad— we do send observers with a pretty big infrastructure behind them mm-hmm. who try to help, help these young democracies have free and fair elections. And they have people who observe the election places and people who know about the computer systems and people who deal with the media people and try to check excessive, you know, demagoguery and stuff. um, Maybe we should think about our own election in that way. And maybe, yeah, this sounds kind of goo-goo-ish, but, I mean, maybe a bipartisan commission, you know, headed by whatever, you know, Colin Powell and Madeleine Albright, but with a lot of different types of people on Mm -hmm. it uh, that would have the ability to say hey, four weeks out, we have a, there's a problem, it looks like, in terms of a massive wave of disinformation coming from here. Or, you know what, I think we need an emergency appropriation to make sure the voting machines work here. Or if the grid goes down, let's agree ahead of time right. that there'll be an extra day of voting in the places it goes down and not mm-hmm. let demagogues on either side, uh, you know, sort of try to take advantage of it on election day itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would maybe do some good. And so we all agree it would do some good. We all agree that it's not clear who is in charge of that. Like, right. who sets up that, you know? Yeah, who does? Maybe, well, maybe, like, civil society, you know, people have to get together, mm-hmm. and the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation or whatever give a lot of money, or not a lot of money, but a little money, honestly, and you get a few people to run this thing, and it's a kind of, like, League of Women Voters kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of not a government thing. Or you could have the government, incidentally, mm-hmm. in a normal situation where we weren't insanely hyper-partisan. Uh, presumably Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi could agree on the following 10 people of, distinction, retired judges and retired media executives who would sort of be part of this, and then they'd hire some capable staff and at least put out alerts as to what's happening. Well, I'm but, pretty worried that that yeah. isn't happening, But though. Know? You
3: look, Mitch McConnell uh, slow-rolled the election security right. in in Congress for the longest time, and it's still not adequate. It's so inadequate compared to the, the challenges they face.
2: Yeah, that's my sense, too. Yeah. yeah, so that's bad. We may try to do some stuff. We, I mean, others yeah. in the sort of democracy, you know, world may try to spend some foundation and private money to sort of get some stuff going, but obviously would have less... Oomph and less credibility if it's a bunch of people saying we've got a commission as opposed to a kind of official.
3: Yes, they should do scenario building on all these things. Yes. Like I, the, the scenario I said was that if he loses and then goes on Twitter saying I didn't lose, rise up. What do you do if you're Twitter? Uh, the answer should be obvious. Take him down. He's not right. the president. Is he newsworthy anymore? Should you let someone lie about, you know, and cause possible damage? And uh, But then everything is left in the hands of a guy who doesn't eat enough, Jack Dorsey. <laughs> like, okay. Well,
2: and or at least—so to yeah. further that, uh, the one way to deal with that, maybe you can't really force Jack Dorsey to do XYZ, but <laughs> you could have a— commission that's met with him and with Zuckerberg and everyone else, you know, uh, for the weeks and months before the election, Mm -hmm. and has at least tentatively agreed to some protocols that everything will just... You know, we'll just put everything on hold for six hours till we find out what's going on. to right. use the phrase that Trump has used, right. or we'll have disclaimers on every, you know, whatever. I mean,
1: I, I don't know. How
3: disclaimers you, is how they work, but they don't work very well. Work I mean, well, it yeah. didn't really work in the the bo- uh, the um, New Zealand killings. They couldn't pull those down fast right. enough, and they can't control it as it goes through. And I think once, I think taking off is the only thing actually. Like but I, th- I think if you
2: could get Rupert Murdoch and whoever, the, you know, the head of NBC, I suppose, whatever the equivalent would be on the left, and about 10 other people together ahead of time to agree, look, if we have a genuine—if 50 communities lose power in the grid and they're predominantly Democratic or Republican, and so we- there's an issue of them having to redo the parts of the election— Everyone is going to counsel calm and patience and responsibility for the first 48 hours and not going to broadcast inciting, you know, Tucker Carlson, inciting people to riot. Mm-hmm. That at least would be something, but we're yeah. not even, I don't think people are even talking about that.
3: No, not at all. It's a very good idea. Well, some, and it, you have to involve the tech companies in it. You right.
2: And everyone has to be involved ahead of time. That's the right. main thing. The main thing that came out of our scenario was almost there have to be people with everyone's cell phone numbers at their disposal. What, like a phone at, tree? Yeah. Like at 10 p.m. on Election night Yeah. If something goes wildly haywire in the right. vote counting in Florida to say, wait a second. Right. And everyone has to agree, we're going to fix this and get this right. And meanwhile, let's just be quiet about, you know, nuts not incite so people.
3: Let's assume a good election or one that isn't so bad this time without flood of disinformation from the Russians, which is coming or Iranians or Chinese or anyone else. How do you assess the election going forward with the Democrats?
2: I mean, I guess I have kind of a conventional view, which obviously can be, is, is wrong sometimes, and now everyone's spooked because it was wrong in 2000, to some degree in 2016. I mean, I think Trump's a weak incumbent, just... If you look at the numbers, and the Democrats should win on a referendum on the Trump presidency, he doesn't want over any voters to speak of, and he's lost some of those who voted for him as sort of taking a gamble in 2016. It's harder when you're an incumbent than if you're the disruptor who's going to come in. A lot of people rationalize Trump. They'll disrupt mm-hmm. things. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I think people are a little nervous now about where mm-hmm. that goes in a Trump second term. Having said that, you know, these things are unpredictable. We don't know who the Democratic nominee is going to be, so I don't, ha- I don't have any great... Insights. I worry that whether Trump, if Trump wins, I really worry about the country. If Trump loses, I still worry about a lot of too many people that assume, okay, well, Trump's done. And the mm-hmm. Republican Party goes back to being a sane party, and the Democrats hopefully govern well, and everyone's back to kind of a semi-happy outcome. I don't know. Do the Republicans go back to being a sane? Does Trump go away? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Does, d- does Trumpism go away? Don't other people learn the lessons of Trump? I'm very worried on the right that, mm-hmm. that it's going to be much harder to get rid of Trump and Trumpism than I would have thought three years ago or so. And partly that's because of the endless accommodation. Right. So suddenly there are a lot of Republican senators and congressmen and even some governors and stuff and younger officials and whatever, activists, who have a sort of vested interest in— not delegitimizing Trump, if mm-hmm. I said that right. You know what I mean? Right, Because right, otherwise, have what to. have they been doing yeah. for the last three years? So right. Uh, right. You, you, so that's a, that's a big problem, too, I think. Yeah,
3: the Vichy France problem. Uh-oh, yes. you were, you know, kind of, you were sort of cooperated with. Right. Uh, which you don't want to give up about that easily.
2: Right. You want to give people, probably a lot of people, a path back to respectability, but you're not going to purge, you know. As with France, actually, they mm-hmm. kind of turned a blind eye, or with the communists you know, after mm-hmm. 1989 to a lot, of, to what a lot of people did. But you do need also a breakpoint where people say that was not legitimate, mm-hmm. or, that was not acceptable, and I don't know if we'll get that in this case.
3: Okay, Les, I want to finish up on China. So one of the things Trump's doing is the tariffs and everything else, and obviously the big issue with tech and and what, what they've been doing in terms of innovation and surveillance and other things. And there's a whole raft of things that go along with it, which is AI development, which is facial recognition, which is all kinds of things. But to me, a lot of people aren't looking at the sort of the ascent of China. Trump is sort of directionally correct in that regard, especially in terms of tech. I've talked to lots of military figures and others. They feel like this is the real challenge, the technological challenge from China over the next 25 years.
2: I mean, one of the worst things about Trump is that he'll discredit some things where he was or has been directionally correct. Mm -hmm. Or he'll, you know, it's such a distortion to think the problem is trying to manufacture. No it's not plastic know, toys. I'm like, Stop toys. with the plastic toys. And you know, it is the the, the IP theft, but especially the tech stuff and it's especially the
3: actual innovation. Yeah, now AI. with AI, I mean yeah.
2: probably actual Robotics. actually being ahead of us mm-hmm. or manufacturing stuff that's ahead of us even if they're not really scientifically ahead of us. Now, if we were a serious country, I had this conversation actually with the tech guy I mentioned earlier and then some military people I talked to too. Yeah, we would be treating this the way we treated nuclear weapons in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Not that we got to that all right, but an awful lot of people spent an awful lot of time thinking about what will that world look like? What are the appropriate foreign policies? How do we minimize the spread of them? in terms of irresponsible Mm -hmm. actions, How do we make sure we don't, by mistake, use one, or our enemy doesn't, by mistake, use one against us? And Mm -hmm. the Cuban Missile Crisis was a great kind of case study of how close we got on that. Are people even thinking, though, in a serious way about AI, cyber, all the things that could happen? Mm -hmm. To say nothing of the kind of Orwellian, you know, surveillance type stuff, Uh, which, again, we shouldn't be—the technology is going to exist. I think there are ways for it to exist compatible with basic liberties and basic uh, freedoms of a, of a liberal democracy. But the degree to which we've just become— uh, this was already happening, I suppose. We were mm-hmm. kind of not having a serious discussion. Trump has made it 20 times harder to have a serious discussion. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, uh, yeah, it's getting pretty urgent, don't you think? I mean, we don't have a, a complete, huge amount of time I keep, to I, like—
3: I'm writing about it all the time. I'm like, look, over here, like, over here, there's things happening that are really disturbing from a military point of view, from a technological point of view.
2: And part of me thinks— that people like me, not that I have much to say about this, but, you know, should be a little more focused on that and not on Trump. But on the other hand, until you fix Trump, it's a little hard to get this other stuff fixed. So mm-hmm. it's a sort of a, you know, I think of Trump as, uh, we have these underlying medical problems, you know, but if you have a bad infection, you can't kind of get to fixing the medical problems right. until the infection gets purged from the it's system.
3: Infection. All right, but i want to finish up talking about media in general. So here you are, you spent a lot of time on Twitter. What do you, how do you look at the media landscape now?
2: I guess I have this sort of conventional view that it's it has changed a lot. I mean, the brands are individuals, no longer the entities quite as much, a little bit still with the Times, I suppose, and a couple others. But, you know, I really could see this in real time with the Weekly Standard, where at the beginning we spent a lot of time thinking about each issue of the magazine, of a balance mm-hmm. foreign policy, domestic policy, culture, something light and funny, something serious and long, uh, mm-hmm. the magazines even think that way anywhere should they I mean it, it, some people buy the actual print issue and like therefore having a variety of stuff but most people read it online and you read this article you don't read that article so it just becomes a collect not just it's a like collection songs
3: versus an album
2: yeah which is fine to a degree I mean you can guess some terrific I read a lot of terrific stuff that I, from magazines I would never have subscribed to or websites that I wouldn't know about because someone linked to it on Twitter mm-hmm. and I say well this George is really Conway's interesting George Conway's in The Atlantic yeah, that was something yeah yeah, though the Atlantic is a more established brand. Yeah. But I mean really obscure things and, and I you know, if you have particular interests, it's a great mm-hmm. way to find things that you wouldn't otherwise find. So I'm not an I've always been sort of bullish on the modern media landscape in the sense that I think people overstate how good things were in the good old days and understate the actual educational and informational possibilities of the new era, which are really pretty fantastic yeah, in many I ways. Agree. But it also you know there's also a price that's paid and i'm not sure anyone's quite figured out how to how to get to a reasonable balance on this
3: and what would you do if you were starting the Weekly Standard now? What do you like from a, from so we, a conservative so point of view? our little
2: Defending Democracy Together puts out the Bulwark, which is a mm-hmm. website that has—Jonathan Last does an excellent job—three uh, or four pieces a day, which are mostly yeah. kind of focused on Trump and mm-hmm. politics, obviously. It's not a full-scale It's also funny. Magazine. So. It tries to be funny. It tries to be lively. The Steve Hayes and Jonah Goldberg are starting the dispatch, which will be a little more— maybe like the Weekly Standard was as a as a website. Um, you know, I think there's a case for aggregators, though everyone's doing aggregators, so there are too many aggregators, someone has to aggregate the aggregators, but in the sense that I personally don't find it useful to have someone tell me, here's three really good articles. Or in tech, I'm sure there's right mm-hmm. here. Here are five things you really should read to figure out what from this week to figure out what's happening on China and AI mm-hmm. and surveillance at all. But someone like me, I've mean, had it's such a sea of information. Mm-hmm. So I guess I think it'll look pretty different by the. I don't. Know, one question also: How far into this revolution are we? That's what I can't tell. Mm-hmm. Are we most of the way through, and we can sort of think about what the new forms will be, or are we twenty percent into it? And we're still in you haven't total. You have
3: gotten to VR yet, Bill. What's that? VR, Trump and VR. Ah, uh, <laughs> the possibilities. No,
2: but I mean seriously, yeah. I, I kind of feel like we're in the early stages. One hundred percent. Not a uh, late stages. Right. And if you just look at history, if you're in the early stages of, I don't know, the printing of the revolution, which led to the book, mm-hmm. you know, people didn't. It just it's asking a lot of people to sort of imagine what it's going to be like when there are mass-produced books all over the place when you've mm-hmm. got, like, a few of them floating around and right. it is beginning to change things. And I kind of feel like we're in that situation. It's mm-hmm. pretty hard to... So I think what you, history would suggest you should do is try to make things as responsible as possible while you're going through this transition. I mean, I think there's a certain amount of, you know, if only we could figure everything out, we can sort of get to this end state. Right. That's not how it's going to work. But you can at least minimize the damage as we go through it and maximize the kind of opportunities. Part of that is probably not foreclosing options too much because you want to keep a lot of, you know, flexibility as we learn new things. Mm -hmm. But also for the sake, I mean, some core principles and values like liberty and truth... It's worth fighting pretty hard, I think, to make sure they don't get drowned in the—
3: So the state of the modern media, I want to end where, up, where do you see it? You've been participating in it. You've also been an analyst. You've been a pundit. I mean, how I'm do you look I'm less
2: pessimistic than most people, mm-hmm. I would say, because I—and here's my Trump obsession. Mm-hmm. I think if Trump weren't president, if Hillary Clinton— were president, and we were having sort of normal fights and stuff. I think we would all be unhappy about certain aspects of the modern media, and correctly so, and worried about them and maybe dealing with them or not. But I kind of think it would—I think Trump, just the accident of having, as you said, a media-friendly, modern media-friendly— hyper-demagogue as president has accentuated everything. Now, maybe that will be healthy in the sense that it forces people to come to grips with stuff in a way that we wouldn't have to if we had a more traditional White House and people wouldn't have to think that much mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. what the you know, how much opportunity it offers to demagogues and uh, foreign actors and bad actors and so forth. So maybe in a way it's an action-forcing event, but I, I can't say that the system has responded very well, well to it. There,
3: will this be a blueprint? Or there won't be. So I don't think it will because there's not a lot like him. Like it's hard. I well, can't that's, imagine. So the good news. Suddenly Nikki Haley or Pence forget it. Like has almost no internet charm whatsoever. But,
2: well, so I'd say yes. Yeah, so part of me, so, and I, I, I'd extend that a little and say you now I look around at the younger members, even the people running for office. They're not that Trumpy, and so I kind of think it's not the blueprint, maybe. And then I think I don't know. Are we confident that Tucker Carlson's not going to run for president in 2024? And if he oh, did, I'm wouldn't he be the re- wouldn't he be like a front runner in the Republican race, though? Honestly, or someone else from Fox, or we'll someone else get a house
3: in Paris, or, right? or someone else we oh. haven't oh. even
2: thought of who's not I'm on one Fox one but Paris. is on
3: right.
1: social
2: media almost mm-hmm. entirely.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And aren't more of those people? That, is is Trump the kind of thin edge of the uh, of the wedge, or is he kind of a one off? And I think you could argue that a little bit. Both ways.
3: What will you do if Tucker Carlson becomes president? I, know, uh, I have to are move.
2: Are you yeah. going to Paris? I have yeah. to. Okay. He's going okay. like, to have me killed. let Well, I'll let you scout out the— I don't know the, how he found you me. You can scout out the, I the property. I how
3: that guy found me, he he It's did. a tribute to you. you no, know. it's not. You where like, is wear, no his, wear his
2: enmity as a badge of honor.
3: Right, I guess. But does that yeah. happen? Is that where we get to? Is an endless series of media
2: stars? Trump loses— but denies that it was a fair election, but let's assume he leaves office right. ultimately. Uh, Elizabeth Warren becomes president. Let's just leave aside any judgment right. on the merits of her policies. But, you know, there's a, the business cycle still exists, and there's a recession in 2021, mm-hmm. and something goes awry somewhere in the world, and nuclear weapon goes off somewhere or something. Maybe not her fault at all. I don't know. Is the reaction on the right you know we have to be responsible and have serious people now mm-hmm. as our candidates in 2022 and 2024, or is the action on, reaction on the right, Trump was right, he was robbed. What we need is younger versions of Trump who are less flaky and mm-hmm. less you know, di- undisciplined than Trump. That would be the nightmare scenario, I think, where you get sort of Trumpism, a worse version of Trumpism on the right. I don't know what the left would do in that case, but it could be, a, I mean, people underestimate uh, the fragility, I think, of, you know, decent politics, and we've had them pretty, I would have overstated. it, I mean, God mm-hmm. knows, slavery and segregation and a bunch of other things, but I mean, still, uh, you know, it, it's- Progress. Yes, and people underestimate sort of, it. once that starts to erode, I kind of think we have a lot of infrastructure here to prop us up and, and a lot of social capital, so to speak, to prop us up, but you worry that it could tip over faster yep. than people think.
3: Yeah, I guess Internet people aren't running anymore, though. Thank God for
2: that.
3: Stop that. Anyway, Bill, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We're going to have you back after the election. See what happens.
2: Okay, from Paris.
3: From Paris, that, <laughs> that would no, be no, good. I've I told Tucker i to be president. <laughs> okay. That I'm good, unless AOC, and then I'll be safe. Who knows? Um, you can follow me on. I'll be too old. It doesn't matter at the point. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey E S J. Bill, where can people find you online? You're a tremendous Twitterer. Yeah,
2: at Bill Crystal.
3: Yeah, and, De- and defending the, democracy. At defending
2: democracy together. Go to and that's also just defending democracy together. And The Bulwark, bulwark.com. I think you'll find Bulwark's great, interesting. Actually. It's really a great
3: place. Um, if you liked this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.